Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Educating Investors Podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, Financial Advisor of Harmony Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode, Democrat Sweep and what it means for the U.S. economy and markets. I believe that educated investors equal successful investors. The goal of this podcast is to help to educate as many individuals as possible on the markets, the economy, and financial planning topics. In this episode, I am going to discuss what the outcome of the election could mean for the U.S. economy and the markets. In the case of the Georgia Senate runoff elections, the Democrat wins in Georgia races give the Democrats 50 seats in the upper house and will give them a narrow edge with Camilla Harris casting the potential tie-breaking vote after she has sworn in as vice president and presides over the Senate. Even with the incoming vice president having the ability to cast a tie-breaking vote, there are limits to what they will be able to pass based on the 50-50 vote in the Senate. Centrist Democrats Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Tester of Montana, and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona are among those who will have a say in the fate of the party's more ambitious legislative goals. Here are a few of the agenda items that potentially could come. There will be additional round of stimulus. At the end of last year, the House passed a bill to increase stimulus payments to 2000 up from 600 per adult and per child for individuals with adjusted gross incomes under 75000 Ultimately, the push for bigger checks faced opposition in the Republican-controlled Senate and the legislation right out of time. With the Dems controlling both houses of Congress and the White House, the odds for additional fiscal stimulus got a big boost. Most likely, action would be to top up the $600 household relief checks approved in 2020's waiting days to $2,000, an amount President Donald Trump and the House Democrats favored, but which was opposed by the Republicans, who then controlled the Senate. According to the plan recently released by President-elect Biden, it would send another 1400 to individuals who qualified based on income. Adult dependents over 17 years old who didn't qualify in previous plans could receive checks now. This additional fiscal support could help to build a bridge to a more complete reopening of the economy, which should lead to additional economic growth in the U.S. in 2021. An additional round of COVID stimulus will likely be the Biden's administrative first priority with a deadline of mid-March when many of the provisions in the $900 billion December past COVID bill expires. It is uncertain whether all Democratic senators will support everything in the plan. Senator Joe Manchin has already been critical of the proposed $2,000 stimulus checks because it would send checks to people who are employed. There should be additional help for state and local governments, which the formerly GOP-controlled Senate had opposed. State and local governments continued to cut payrolls employment in December, a sign that a crucial sector was bleeding jobs nine months into the pandemic. Employment by state and local governments represent about 13% of total employment in the U.S., more than the federal government. State and local tax revenues represent about 9% of GDP. Because most are required to balance their budgets, lower income or higher expenses can lead to big job cuts. As of last month, they reported 1.4 million fewer jobs than in February, the month before the pandemic job losses started. One of the lessons that was learned from the years following the Great Recession is that cutbacks by state and local government can be a substantial restraint on the recovery of the economy, and so ensuring that state and local governments have enough funding is important both for ensuring that needed services are provided and that the economic recovery is as robust as possible. According to the plan recently released by President-elect Biden, $440 billion would be used for struggling local and state governments. Once a complete economic reopening starts to take shape with the additional fiscal stimulus and the vaccination of the population with the vaccines, infrastructure could be an area where there is some level of bipartisanship between the Democrats and Republicans. 
The infrastructure that could be envisioned could include traditional infrastructure programs such as roads and bridges, as well as non-traditional infrastructure improvements to areas such as our broadband network and green energy. Everybody agrees the nation's infrastructure systems are in decline and in need of help. Every four years, the American Society of Civil Engineers report card for America's infrastructure depicts the condition and performance of American infrastructure in the familiar form of a school report card, assigning letter grades based on the physical condition and needed investment for improvement. The last report came out in 2017, so we should be getting a new report this year. In 2017, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave America's infrastructure grade a D+. This type of spending would be a productive use of debt that has the potential to have more lasting economic benefits than targeted aid and could increase productivity and maybe inflation in the longer run. Tax hikes would be used to help finance the higher spending. The Biden campaign ran on a platform of $4 trillion of tax hikes to offset some of the additional spending. With a very tight split of the Senate and the U.S. economy still recovering from a sharp recession, tax changes will probably need to be more modest. This could mean a slight increase in the corporate tax rate, as well as an increase in the personal tax rate for the top tax bracket. Other potential changes such as reducing the estate tax exemption, abolishing the step-up in basis, and increasing capital gains for those making more than a million per year are possible source of revenue as well, but could also face some difficulty of getting through due to the narrowly divided Senate. There is far less agreement among Democrats on making changes to the estate tax or increasing taxes on capital gains and dividends for wealthier filers. If the individual tax code changes are approved this year, there is little historical precedent for those changes to be retroactive to the beginning of the year. Investors should have time to understand and plan for any changes to the tax code before they go into effect, so any tax increases in 2021 are unlikely to take effect before 2022. So if these agenda items are passed, what would this mean for the economy? Additional fiscal support along with the continued easy monetary policy of the Federal Reserve would help economic growth in 2021 and 2022. Even before the fiscal support package that was passed at the end of 2020 and the additional support that could be passed in the first quarter of this year, the Federal Reserve projected the economic growth for 2021 to be at 4.2% and to slow some in 2022 to 3.2%. These projections could potentially be upgraded by the Fed when they release their next set of economic projections in March. The $900 billion of stimulus passed in December is designed to filter into the economy quickly and should also help to bridge the gap between near-term economic weakness and a better public health outlook later in the year, while the traditional fiscal stimulus boost is likely to produce even a stronger than previously expected U.S. growth rebound in 2021 this level of growth would still be above the trend growth that we have seen recently of 2%. However, with increase in debt to GDP and decrease in workers due to lower birth rates and immigration, economic growth should start to revert back to the recent levels of around 2%, as the Fed shows in its long-run rate of economic growth of 1.8%. Productivity would have to do more of the heavy lifting if the growth in workers slows to increase economic growth. According to the BLS, productivity has already grown at an 8% yearly rate since the pandemic began, the fastest pace for improvement since the 1960s. Output per hour work tends to rise sharply during downturns as companies slash costs and the least efficient businesses are forced to close. The BLS goes on to state that productivity grew more than 4% a year in 2002 and 2003 and 6% in 2009, but just 2% each year from 2004 through 2007, and by only 1% each year from 2010 to 2019. The 
question will be if productivity growth will slow coming out of this downturn. In terms of interest rates, they should continue to rise on the intermediate and long end due to additional stimulus, which will lead initially to above-trend growth as the economy reopens after vaccinations. The additional stimulus will lead to an increase in issuance of treasuries, which will lead to higher rates. The short end of the curve, which is controlled by the Fed, will be anchored near zero, which will lead to a widening yield curve. The question is how long will the Fed let interest rates move up before they feel that it's necessary to step in? Higher interest rates means an increase in the cost of our debt as well as the potential to slow the economic recovery coming out of the pandemic. I believe that the Fed would step in and use yield curve control to cap interest rates. Based on the inflation target of an average of 2%, I believe the target would be around 2% in the 10-year treasury based on the interest rate that is consistently above the inflation rate would help to put downward pressure on inflation, which the Fed is looking to increase. Looking at the copper-gold ratio, it shows that the 10-year Treasury yield should be around 2% if it were not for the Fed pushing rates down with its asset purchases. If the economy were to continue to decline or the stock market were to fall enough, the Fed will look to step in much sooner than the 2% level on the 10-year Treasury. Other options that they could look at is to move their asset purchases more to the longer end of the yield curve. With the possibility of budget deficits increasing in fiscal year 2021 by potentially 4 to $5 trillion, based on the $900 billion stimulus at the end of last year, the potential $1.9 trillion that was just proposed, as well as an additional stimulus bill for agenda items such as infrastructure and clean energy, on top of a baseline deficit of at least a trillion, the Fed may have to increase asset purchases to help finance the debt. I believe that yield curve control by the Fed would be the appropriate choice because they would not have to purchase a consistent amount of treasuries, but buy the amount necessary to cap interest rates. Forward guidance by the Federal Reserve would help to promote that cap, which would mean that buyers would look to come in and around the cap level and do some of the work of the Federal Reserve for them. It's likely to have a more moderate effect on inflation amid the lingering effects of the coronavirus-induced recession. Inflation lags growth and improvements in the labor market and still isn't likely to reach 2% this year. However, with easier year-over-year comparisons at the beginning of this year, we could see inflation above 2%. The Fed will see this as a temporary uptick in inflation due to the easier comparisons. Based on their economic projections in December, they don't see their preferred measure of inflation, the core PCE, hitting 2% until 2023. A larger fiscal stimulus increases inflation risk in the longer run. The question will be if the factors that could lead to a consistent higher inflation will be stronger than those for lower inflation. Forces that could push inflation higher include continued dollar depreciation, money printing if followed by an increase in the velocity of money, supply chain constraints, ongoing deglobalization, a tighter labor market, and the Fed's commitment to overshooting its inflation targets. The forces that could push inflation lower include a weak economy, weak labor markets, older demographics, technology including robots and automation, the rise of unproductive zombie companies, and more government debt holding back growth. The details of any infrastructure package will dictate any productivity or labor supply gains, and these factors, as well as any tax changes that are able to get through Congress, will impact the longer-run growth and deficit outlook for the United States. What could this mean for markets? According to Datatrek research, the S&P 500 index has returned an average of 14% a year when Democrats have controlled Congress and the White House since 1948. According to Bespoke Investments, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has gained an average of 15.7%. Increased earnings growth is positive for both equities and credit, 
provides more of a significant tailwind for the equity markets. This is why historically equity markets have generated higher risk-adjusted returns during the early stages of a business cycle. The Fed's commitment to overshoot its inflation target is also supportive for equities, which look attractive given what is likely to be an extended period of negative or low real yields. Additional fiscal stimulus will lead to potentially higher interest rates. This additional fiscal stimulus and higher rates would benefit small cap and value. A steeper yield curve would benefit banks, insurance companies, and other financials. The rise in market rates and a steepening yield curve is a big plus for financials, especially for the regional banks, which will not face any regulatory risk. Energy and healthcare companies could see tougher regulations under Biden, while clean energy and other cyclical companies, which have already benefited, could continue to benefit under a Biden administration. Real estate and utilities could face more pressure as bond yields rise due to the fact they are more interest rate sensitive. There is the potential for a change in market leadership between international and U.S. stocks. Market leadership tends to last for many years, even a decade, before reversing at the start of a new cycle. For example, after international stocks outperformed in the 80s, the 1990 recession saw a shift to U.S. stock outperformance. The 2001 recession saw a switch back to international outperformance, and the 2008 recession flipped the switch again to U.S. outperformance. And now the start of a new cycle may once again single a switch to international stocks. International stocks are trading at cheaper valuations than the U.S. stocks, have an expected higher earnings growth, and could benefit from the lower dollar. If the reflation trade fails to deliver, then yields would stop rising, and tech companies, which are longer-duration assets, would do well. Tech stocks are on the other side of the barbell to the reopening trade, which includes small cap, value, and emerging markets. Tech should continue to do well over the long term, based on the outlook for slower economic growth in the future and investors looking for growth. Commodities, including gold, would benefit from continued decline in the dollar due to growing budget and trade deficits. Federal relief for strapped states and local governments should benefit municipal bonds. When the value of tax exemption is taken into consideration, munis look even better for income investors. That would be even more so if tax rates on the wealthy rise as proposed by President-elect Joe Biden. High-quality duration government bonds should continue to be a reliable source of diversification against a growth shock despite yields at historically low levels. U.S. Treasuries have more room to rally than most developed market government bonds and are likely to remain the flight-to-quality asset of choice. And finally, dividend growth should be an area that benefits from the need for income from investors and the lack of income from bonds due to lower yields. The current S&P 500 dividend yield is 1.5% and the 10-year Treasury yield is 1.09%. This completes this episode of the Educating Investors podcast. I know that time is an important asset for everybody, so I appreciate you taking part of your day to listen. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, feel free to share this with other friends and family that may be interested. Also, feel free to check out my website at www.harmonywealthmanagement.com to learn more about what I do, as well as to find my contact information and link to my LinkedIn page and blog. The Educating Investors podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The information presented on the Educating Investors podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The Educating Investors Podcast is host Scott Peterson and his firm Harmony Wealth Management LLC should not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on the Educating Investors Podcast show.